forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello. I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I love to dance. <laughs> oh my God, our producer's laughing. Hey, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I also love to dance. I think what's so funny about you is you don't have a lick of rhythm. No, I'm I wanna try to get I wanna try to get more rhythm, but I don't know how you do that. I get we should go to like a dance class. Yeah. I need to get like I need to get more rhythm because I for some reason I think I, I'm too controlled with my joints. Oh, interesting. Like, I think, like, even when I, if I ever get a massage, they always go relax. <laughs> and I'm like, I am relaxed. And they're like, no, you're not. So I, I think I, like, can't un, unclench my joints. One of my favorite sketches we did on the YouTube channel was the silly dancing sketch. Oh, yeah. And then reveal, and revealing, like, your dancing at the end kills me every time. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Yeah, I don't mean, you know what it is, is that dancing is so earnest and and yeah. vulnerable. And maybe I just am like, if I make it bad on purpose or a joke, then no one can come for me. Well, I'm like a little worried about our first dance at the wedding. Why? Well, because everyone's going to be watching. I'm not I'm not a great dancer. I, so I, I wanted to do like a whole elaborate bit where it was like kind of a sketch where we had planned out like a very choreographed dance that wasn't good. <laughs> and then got in a fight in the middle of it. And it was like a whole goof. And then John said, no. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. But I think that what that idea was a defense mechanism against me having to dance earnestly in front of all my loved ones. But it's a slow dance. Oh, we're not doing a slow dance. You're not? No. What are you doing? I can't reveal. What do you mean you're not? What are you doing? Like a like a dance that you're choreographing? Well, I don't think we're going to choreograph it, but I think we're going to like dance dance. It's not a slow dance song. What? Your your song, your like your first dance song for your wedding is a fast song? Yeah. What? <laughs> what? Yeah, it's gonna be fun. <laughs> oh my God. What can I so I can't know what Off it is. Mike, I'll tell you. Oh my god, that's so crazy. Wow, I love that. Cause like usually it's like, what is it? It's usually some Frank Sinatra song or some kind of like, isn't she Celine lovely Dion. or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I always wanted when I was getting married, I wanted <laughs> like a kind of a fun goof song too because it's also funny like when in a relationship do you find like okay this is our song well that was the thing is like we were racking our brain racking our brain there was this one song I thought we could do because we danced to it on this boat we were on once and that felt meaningful to me but um <laughs> what song was that uh shut up and dance Oh, I walk the moon. Oh, that was my song with someone I broke up with. Oh, see, so we'll definitely play that song at the wedding, but yeah. I, we decided that won't be our our song. But yeah, I'm excited. And then I also have to have a dance with my father. Oh, right. And what's your song with your dad? I'm not revealing the okay, goods. Okay, sorry. Okay, what what is what is in past relationships? What have been like your song? Well, what's funny is I was also previously going to be getting married and, <laughs> and we had picked out our first dance song with my ex-fiance and it was going to be a bleacher song. Oh, interesting. But like, I think if that hadn't been the case, then John and I probably would have picked a bleacher song interesting. for our wedding. Because you Jack we, Antonoff stand? Well, I, I mean, a huge, like John and I listen to bleachers all the time. Whoa, interesting. But like, it can't, I feel like I can't repeat that. What's your favorite one from them? Uh, I love so the one we were I was going to do with my first wedding was was um, wake me. 
Oh, I don't know that one. I like Take the Money. Yeah. Well, that's a. I love all their shit. It's also good. But yeah, we can't. We'll have some at the wedding, but it's not going to be our first dance song. But it's interesting. I know. So what what in the past? What were your other songs with people? Do you remember? I feel like with one of my exes, it was like a Beach Boy song. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. But was it was it, it, it there's a difference, right? It's like, wouldn't it be nice is a beautiful Beach Boy song. But then you also hear like our our song was what's the one that's like fun, fun, fun till her daddy takes the T-bird <laughs> <Yeah>. away. <laughs> like you're like, oh, that one's uh, kind of confusing, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's the one where they uh, they talk about how they want to go home. Sloop John B. That see oh, that would that's be a, a really sad. Song. I know it's a really sad one. So that about would be sailing. Hard. Yeah, <laughs> never has there been a sadder song about sailing than <laughs> Sleep John B. This is just between us, a variety show filled with heartful advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. My ex, our song was by Barbara Streisand. Oh, which one? You're the top. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And because parents listening at the wedding would have been like, oh, a Barbara Streisand song. Right. It's so cute. But then the chorus is like, hey there, maybe, baby, you're the top. And also like, I'm I'm the bottom. You're the top is like also one of the lyrics. There's also a really funny part where she's like, I think in the original, not the one that she does uh, live in Brooklyn, but in the original that she does with Ryan O'Neal, there's a part where he's like, you're the nose on the Mona or something like says you're the nose of something. And then because she's Jewish, she goes, hey, watch it. <laughs> I, I love that little ad lib. I love an ad lib. Right. We've got a great episode for everyone today. There's no more music, but well, no, uh, there's always oh, music. Actually, I'm about to sing for everyone. There's I'm always music. <laughs> as, Emma, as Emma Goldman once said, I don't want to be part of your revolution if I can't dance. I love that. Right. Today, we're going to be talking to Kimmy Culp all about her podcast, All the Wiser, and also about people about their worst moments in their lives, getting over the shame of pain. And later, we're going to be talking about Senator Feinstein and the controversy around her uh, refusal to resign. Yeah. But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means. Hit it! International question. Jen Haley, California. Nice. And that is that you singing that is going to be the first dance song at my wedding to Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Haley writes TLDR. How do you form and maintain female friendships when you have severe social anxiety? Pronouns she, her, they, them. I've always been the shy type, never having more than one or two friends at a time. Although the friendships I did have were always very intense and emotionally deep. Starting in high school, though, I found finding and maintaining friendships, especially female friendships, to be very difficult. Going from romantic relationship to relationship also seriously did not help. I found myself getting absorbed in my partner's lives and their predominantly male friend group more often than seeking out female friendships of my own. Mm. Then as I went off to college, I found it even more impossible to make friends. I made one super close friend, but he's a guy. And then the pandemic hit. And my social anxiety has been debilitating ever since. For context, I struggle with bipolar disorder, shout out Gabe, and anxiety, clearly. I think part of the reason why I've struggled with connecting to people, even from a young age, is because I was nonverbal until the age of four or so. Also, I'm starting to think my difficulty finding and maintaining female friendships is in part because one, I don't have any sisters. And two, I received upsetting and confusing responses from former girlfriends 
when I started opening up about my sexuality. Almost as out of a movie, my middle school best friend started acting uncomfortable around me, assuming I was romantically interested in her or other girls in our grade just because I might be bisexual. Again, shout out Gabe. So anyway, I guess my question is, how do you form female friendships when you struggle with severe social anxiety and you have inexperience in female friendships? More than that, how do you maintain those female friendships when you struggle with things like bipolar disorder? My social anxiety makes things so isolating for me. The fact that I don't feel like I'm at the right college doesn't help. And sometimes I genuinely find myself questioning my gender because it's so hard to connect with women. Sometimes I also feel like it's impossible for me to make these friendships because my lack of them sends a red flag. I don't even know if this is my social anxiety or my rationality speaking. The common denominator is clearly me, and I accept that I don't think I've always been emotionally available to take on female friendships, but I just also don't know how to. Sorry for the long email. I'm a longtime listener from the BuzzFeed days, and I love you guys and all that you do. Much love. This is a complicated one. It is. Extremely complicated. It's interesting that we don't ask as much of men from friendships in some ways. Like when we have Gabe, when we had Gabe Malika on the show and he was talking about his adult friendships and how he struggled with them with men and him sort of saying like as a straight guy being like, well, yeah. And then my, you know, my friends and I, we just go out and we drink beer and we don't really talk about stuff. I don't I was like, I don't think that could be the case for every guy. Like, I think you might be seeking out people who are particularly maybe un unemotional or un, I don't know, or unemotionally available. It's hard. Like I am also not, I'm not a super emotional friend. So I feel like I'm like sort of giving advice to myself. I don't know. (laughs) I have a lot of female friends and I I have friends of, of all genders, but I don't really know. I've always found female friendship to be baffling as well. I think something I'm learning is you don't always have to feel totally comfortable and secure in your friendships in order to maintain them. Okay, interesting. Say more. Like if you have a tendency to overthink your friendships or feel insecure in them like I do, like that doesn't mean that the friendship is about to explode. Mm -hmm. It might just mean that like you have some hangups around friendship and that maybe this part of life is a little trickier and harder and harder to navigate for you. But I think it's really about the cost benefit of the discomfort. Right. So like pushing through the discomfort of checking in with a friend, even though they haven't checked in on you. Mm-hmm. Right. And like in your rational brain, you're like, oh, well, or in your brain, you might be like, oh, but shouldn't shouldn't the rules of the friendship mean that it's their turn and therefore I should just wait and receive. Mm-hmm, but like mm-hmm. pushing through that and being like, no, I like this person. I want to pursue this friendship. I love seeing these like clips of Jane Fonda and like her really famous friends being like, yeah, Jane just really pursued me hard. You know, like <laughs> Sally Field was like, yeah, she came for me and I gave in, you know, like, <laughs> and then and like sitting back here, I'm like, who wouldn't want to be friends with Jane Fonda? But like, right. you know, like even her had to like force people to be friends with her. <laughs> and so I think sort of like releasing yourself from the expectation that like everyone else is nailing this. Or that like you'll hit a groove and suddenly you will feel so different and you'll feel so confident and secure in these things. And instead being like, this is a tricky part of life, but it's not worth not pursuing. I I still need to do it anyway. I definitely think I I hear you so hard about women thinking that you're interested in them. 
And also the confusion. This is my deep confusion about female friendship is it seems to be almost romantic in some ways. Like it it seems to be like you're so like a- allowed to be m- more touchy. And also like there's things that are allowed, but then also there's like this level of like deep emotion that comes up like, okay, watching Love is Blind. Like when the, when it's her best friend, the woman, and she tries on the wedding dress and the woman is like hysterically crying. Or when the woman is like, this guy's not the right one for you. I just want the best for you. And I'm just, you're so wonderful and perfect and like sobbing. To me, I'm like, oh, they're in love with her. But it's not. It's just like straight women being friends with each other. It's, it's that emotional. It feels like, it feels romantic to me. I guess, yeah. I mean, uh, but I also think that's intimacy, right? So I think right. that maybe like you are reading intimacy as romantic, which makes total sense. But yeah, I think- it's so crazy to I me. think it's possible to have really deep, intense intimacy without any sort of sexual attraction happening at the same time. Not even that they're sexually attracted to their friend, but that the female friendship is like allowed to, to almost transcend into like a romance. Like you're ama- like even, like the way they write about each other on Instagram. I have to just sometimes be like, is this is this her girlfriend or is this her <laughs> best friend? Like, it's so crazy. And then, then they'll like post with their boyfriend and be like this guy. But then with their female friend, they'll be like, this is my amazing, wonderful girl. It's her birthday and she's stunning. Like, it's so cr- it's so wild to me. And so I don't know if there's just this open channel between women that is more is something that I just I just am baffled by. I don't really know. But like, I also think I maybe, also think that's a big generalization yeah, it is. because I don't I think that say. that's all women. And I think it's a huge generalization because I think there are guys who are like that with each other. So like, I think and and even I, I'm like guilty of this, right? Like, again, I've just been watching different seasons of Love is Blind. But like there there's a guy whose roommate, they're like really close. And there's like a scene where they're like singing together. And even I, I'm I'm a bad person. Like I was like, what are they in love with each other? Like I'm and like, that's just two men being intimate. And I yeah. was like, and I the whole time was like, oh, the roommate's really happy. He's not getting married because he wants to fuck him. Like I'm a, I'm having the bad thoughts. Yeah, but I think you have also always as- associated closeness with with a sexual component. I know, and I'm and I'm in two years into not doing that. Yeah, and it's like a journey. It's really, and especially if you've had negative reactions, like you can only go from how things have been positively reacted to in the past. So, like if I've shared something intimate with someone and then they've had a poor reaction and that's happened a few times, like you wanting to be close to female friends and then them assuming that it's sexual. Why wouldn't you have a fear that that would happen? Like, of course, you know? So like, there's definitely this thing where you haven't had enough positive reinforcement. Right, and then that's only going to be built up through trying again and again and again. And and I think like something I hope we try to do is like normalizing that not all friendships work out. You go through different stages with friends, different phases with friends. Like, you know, it's not a reason to give up completely if this is something you want in your life. Mm -hmm. But I also think, you know, putting this onus on you to like only have female friends. It's like if you connect with other people, you can develop that kind of closeness with them, too. Yeah. Um, And so I'd maybe approach it from like a general friend point of view. Like, you know, if you really hit it off with a, a cis gay man and like they're able to provide the kind of emotional connection that you're looking for, that's not of less value than if it was a female friend. Yeah. And I think also you're saying you're maybe it makes you question your gender. That's completely valid. I also think that 
there are ways, like you're saying, to put yourself in situations where you would meet more women. And I think you just have to sort of build up a tolerance for the the wavy roller coaster that it could that, you know, all friendship could be. But there are ways like if you want to join an all women's choir and all women's like, you know, I don't know, like I didn't want to just say a sport. I just didn't I didn't want to just say sports. But, you know, if you want to join something where there's where there's all women to make more female friends, you can you can act like absolutely be active about that. Definitely. And but I also think, you know, I've been guilty of this, like your friendships don't need to look the way other people's friendships do. You just have to figure out what kind of friendships work for you. And so maybe you're going to be someone who, you know, you're not like hysterically crying when your friend tries on a a wedding (laughs) dress and that's fine. Like take away the expectation of what you think it should look like and instead think about like, what do I actually want? Do I want a friend I text with every single day or do I just want someone who I can check in with every few weeks and me, you know, go for a hike and grab a grab grab brunch, you know, like there's so many versions of it and it's figuring out what what feels right and is giving you the right amount of support. Instead of like, oh, but I should be aspiring to this type of friendship. Yeah. And I totally hear you about it's like people see it as a red flag. But I don't know. I just think you can't go based on that. You can only go from right now. And your life is is beginning. You know, yeah. if you're still in college. Like, I'd say I have like three friends from college. Right. And everyone else in my life is, is post-college. Yeah. There's I'm, a lot of yeah. good stuff. A lot of good people coming. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully that was helpful. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Kimmy Culp. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Kimmy Culp, the host of All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. Hello. Hello. Welcome. (laughs) So I wanted to talk about one aspect of your show, which is eliminating the shame Mm -hmm. And like talking to people about mental health and like the importance of community. So can you talk a little bit about like your journey? And I mean, I have bipolar disorder, you have bipolar disorder, but what was your like start with it? Yeah. So I was diagnosed at 19. And at the time, there was little to no conversation about mental health, certainly about what it looked like to navigate the world with bipolar disorder. So for two decades, I hid it. I hid it from everyone I knew. I had this, you know, sort of creative television film production career. And on the surface, everything looked great. But I was living with and battling a lot of demons and manic episodes and depressive episodes and spending a lot of time and energy hiding it, frankly. And so when I started doing this podcast and I'm like, okay, I'm asking people to go really raw, super vulnerable, like take me through, you know, the the hardest, deepest uh, seasons of your life and what you learned. And I'm like, holy shit, like I am asking them to do something that I am clearly not willing to do (laughs) myself. (laughs) So that is when I decided to share it. And it's so funny. And I don't know if you'll, you'll relate to this with your own sharing, but I had told myself this story of like, this is repellent. People are gonna think I'm, you know, unstable, unhinged, unreliable. 
And it was like, I thought it would repel people and it just drew in people closer. It was like I, I had spent all this time slapping shame on this thing and the weight of it and sharing was just, you know, a, a gift beyond measure to myself. Were you um, seeing a therapist or taking medication when you were hiding it? Yeah, many. I mean, I've never not been on medication since then. So I've done it all. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you come about, you know, to create this show? Like what was the driving factor? Do you think part of it was that you wanted a reason to have to finally share? I mean, for sure, there was like clearly some subconscious. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I had spent my entire career interviewing people, nonfiction storytelling. Uh, So speaking with everyday people about like their journey of being human. And I had done it in traditional outlets. I worked for, you know, Oprah and I was doing documentary film. And I found that like you would create this safe space of intimate conversations. Then you would like send it back to an edit room and they would like slice and dice it and turn it into five minutes and, you know, slap some sensational music on top. And I'm like, that doesn't honor the heart of what happened in the room. So I think Mm -hmm. podcasting was disruptive in the way that I could just do it on my own, like come up with my own distribution, grab a microphone, have these conversations and not have to rely on television studios or film studios to, to share the conversation. So That was why I started. And then the subconscious reason clearly was that I wanted to share my secret. (laughs) So, yeah, I wanted to ask, you were talking about instead of it being repellent, people were drawn to you. So like what what actually did happen? Like what was the response? Well, I mean, I think everybody has a secret. Everybody, for the most part, um, probably has something that they have identified or created a narrative around shame. So first of all, like people started telling me their secrets. <laughs> I'd see someone like in the parking lot at the grocery store. And, um, you know, I'm in LA, I'm a mom, everybody's, you know, just doing their, and somebody would run up and go, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Like, you know, when I was in New York in my 20s, I had suicidal ideation and, mm. you know, thought I was, and they were like hugging me. And this is somebody I barely talked to. Like it <laughs> it it created um, a, just a level, I guess, of intimacy and people hearing my voice and sharing. And then, I mean, the best part, uh, you can't be of service for anything you're not speaking out loud into the world. So all of a sudden people were calling me like my daughter was diagnosed, you know, my husband is off his meds and, and now I can be a resource, I can be of service. And in hiding that, well, frankly, people can't call you if they don't know that you're living with it. So like that is probably the most meaningful piece is like, oh, now I'm kind of making meaning of all this. And I'm so curious about the hope of it all, because I feel like hope is something I I was just writing about on on my sub stack where like it can be so exhausting to maintain hope, (laughs) you know, like. And so what is sort of your approach to that? Because I think sometimes when the messaging is like, you know, hope after pain, I think on the first surface, that's like so powerful and important. But on the second surface, when people feel like they don't have the energy for that, it can feel like, oh, I'm messing, I'm messing up my pain, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it can. And I think that's the delicate balance, right? Because you have to honor the pain and honor the suffering and sit in it and get through it. I mean, that is part of the process. And I also think some people are, you know, 
wired probably more naturally to come out of something and have hope and perspective. But I do think, you know, the stories that we share on the podcast are pretty dramatic in nature. Um, everything from, you know, people who are wrongfully convicted, who have been in solitary confinement, or um, Jessica Buchanan, who was, you know, kid- kidnapped in Somalia. But we did this interview with Edith Eager, the 94-year-old Holocaust survivor who published her first memoir at 90, which is a New York Times bestseller. That's when you should publish a memoir. You've got you've got stuff to talk about. (laughs) I mean, it's yes. I mean, it's totally fascinating. But her thing for all of us is like we cannot control our circumstances or the world around us. And it is going to be I mean, think of it, the most hellish circumstances in the world. Um, But what we can do our best to control is our thoughts and how we move through that at the same time, completely honoring and moving through the suffering. So I think, and it's not always necessarily hope at the end, but it is perspective and that in the end, and maybe it's not every day, but people get up and put, you know, one foot in front of the other somehow and move forward. But yeah, we're pretty careful not to tie it up in a bow because that's not what life looks like. Right. Yeah. And have there been some perspective shifts that your guests have had that you've sort of latched onto where you feel like through these interviews, you have a different approach to life because of something they said or something they went through? Yeah, I mean, it sounds so simple, but, you know, in all of these journeys and we've, you know, interviewed people as they're going through stage four cancer addiction, all of these well, first of all, they're they're really heavy subject matter, but people still have levity and are funny as shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. I feel like people see these headlines of what, you know, or whatever subject lines are like, oh my God, that's so people still have humor and lightness. And um, so that's kind of fascinating in itself. But yeah, I think, you know, certainly everybody uh, consistently across the board, people matter most, especially when the shit hits the fan. It's their their people that they lean into and that human connection that wraps them in love. To your point, the other thing is like suffering is a shared human experience and not comparing it. You know, somebody's is more than the others because it's all very real. And then we've done some things that are a little, I, I won't know how to, or I don't know how to explain it other than it's a perspective that maybe hasn't a space or place to be shared we interviewed Sue Klebold, who's the mother of Dylan Klebold, the Columbine shooter. In a sense, that was risky, right? But you hear her story and you realize she is just a human being and a mom suffering, grieving as much as anyone else. So we tried to do that too, sort of give voice to everything and not compare any of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Her book is really amazing. She's really amazing. I can't, I can't believe what she does. Oh, the fact that she became this like face of, you know, that tragedy and like losing her. She's like, you know, I lost my kid as well. And the ways in which I've like kept up with her weirdly. <laughs> and like, yeah, the the ways in which she's connected with the other parents is incredible. Well, like when it happened, can you imagine right? something happened in society being like, OK, but you're not allowed to grieve. Right. You're not allowed to be in pain. Right. And you can only imagine how much grief and pain she was. But like as a society and a community, everyone's saying you're not allowed 
to right. greet the loss of your son. And that's kind of fascinating to unpack mm-hmm. in a weird way. And yeah, she's amazing and so honest and real and smart. Mm-hmm. She's amazing. I wanted to ask about community too, because I think sometimes what people feel very isolated. There were a lot of instances where I felt isolated and then it was helpful to realize, oh, okay, other people, I'm actually not that special in a way, you know, like, <laughs> oh, actually a lot of people are going through this or a lot of people know about this. And I just, it's so funny. Like yesterday I got a a text. Oh, I'm close with my aunt and I got a text from her because I'm going through like a really horrible breakup. And she, around the same time she lost her husband. Um, and it was like, weirdly, even though he was ill most of his life, kind of unexpected. And we were, she was sort of saying, you know, I hope you have people around you. That's the only thing that's been working for me is just being around people and having people around me all the time. And she's like, wow, like we were joking where, you know, you're talking about how people are funny, but she was like, yeah, what do you, like now you're a widow. Like, what do you do about being a widow? Like, what's the widow situation? And so like, has it been, have you found that most people, when something happens, they seek out, okay, what's, what's the other people that have had this experience? Yeah. And that's massive, especially when somebody, I mean, most of these things that we talk about aren't particularly common, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what sort of makes them unthinkable is that they don't frequently happen. So you're absolutely spot on, right? We were doing a postpartum story about postpartum mental health and it was actually a diagnosis of postpartum bipolar with psychosis. Mm -hmm. But she had all these moms around her like at the park and and she's like, how am I going to move through what just happened that I was, you know, hospitalized, you know, for a month after I delivered. And so she like found this online community of other women who had had postpartum psychosis. And she was talking about there was a group for like military moms and, you know, just all these different people that that you can identify with. So I think it's it, it's huge to find people who've had a shared experience because it makes you feel less alone. How much of that is is made easier by the internet? You know, I was interviewing the Jed Foundation, which is this great nonprofit in New York, their chief medical officer on mental health crisis of teens and young adults. And we were talking about technology and social media and, you know, all the negatives. And she's like, but the positives are you know, for rural error, rural, you know what I'm trying to say, (laughs) rural parts of the country. Um, That's the side effects of my medication a little. (laughs) You know, somebody who is LGBTQI, Mm -hmm. who has no one in their community, who is finding community and connection with people across the country is really huge, right? Mm -hmm. So, I think the internet, like this postpartum story and this mom who found people or, you know, youth who's living in smaller towns or different parts of the country that are connected with community and people having a shared experience is is kind of game changing for them. So I, I think the internet is huge. Yeah, that you can just Google, has anyone else had this is so wild compared to like living and just knowing like 10 people on your street. Yes. I mean, like, I don't know how to broach that I'm feeling depressed. It's so true. And like, even just like, I don't know, going in a chat room or like, oh my, like, holy, sharing yeah. resources, sharing stories. Like, yeah, I think it's huge. Al-Anon was huge for me for that too. Like going to Al-Anon, that was a big one for me realizing, oh, I'm not even that special. I'm not even that interesting. Everyone at Al-Anon had the same story. 
I mean, the not interesting thing is so funny because I was like, oh my God, I have this big secret. Right. I'm going to share it. And then I shared it and I was like, okay. First, I was like self-absorbed. Like people think I'm crazy. They're going to judge me. And then I was like, am I like bipolar enough? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, does this even matter? Or people like, whoa, me. Yeah. Um, and then I just realized like, oh, I get it. Like I'm a effing human going through life and this is my experience. Um, but it is so, and everyone has an experience, but it really like took the, I don't know, the seriousness and weight and narrative out of it. Like a lot of the steam was taken out of it. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. Just between us. And we're back. I have a bit of an unusual question, but, you know, when people are sharing probably the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to them, there, there's different ways to share. And something like we've talked about in school is like, how is the person sharing? Do they seem detached from what they're talking about? Yeah. Or when they're sharing the story, they're completely unemotional? Mm -hmm. Or is it that they're still, it is still so raw that they can't even get through the story? And so I'm just wondering, like, have you picked up on the differences? Like, is there a way to even see where someone is in their healing based on how they share what happened to them? Yeah. So this is a really important question. And it's really important for the podcast for us to honor what the show is about and honor people's experience and where they are on their journey. So there's some quote about like speaking from the scar and not from the wound. And so a, we always do a pre-interview because it's a personal narrative. And I say, is this, will this bring up trauma? Is this healthy for you to speak about? And just make sure there's some people where it's incredibly cathartic and speaking about it, especially if they have made it their mission to educate people and tell their story. But for others, you really want to make sure that it's helpful and not hurtful, frankly. And I do think because it's hope and you know, finding some sort of hope and possibility, they do have to be on the other end of something versus like knee deep in the messy middle. So we are very conscientious about that. That said, I've talked to people who either maybe have shared their story so many times, it feels like flat, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I worry because I think, well, maybe because they've told it so many times or they're just attacked. You know what I mean? It's it's interesting. But most guests find it really healing for all the reasons we just discussed, like why sharing yourself feels good. Yeah, I just it's so easy for other people to judge like the way you were talking about, Sue, where it's like, oh, the way that they told the story was they weren't crying enough. They weren't yeah. like, you know, what? Why were they not, you know, sitting a certain way? Why were they not like I see that so much with interviews on, I mean, you worked for Oprah, like interviews yeah. or like people sort of looking, watching stuff back and saying like, well, why would, you know, the person was telling the story and he went, I've, I've also been rewatching the staircase. And it's like, <laughs> well, why, why isn't he more, you know, like it's, it's this very, people expect other people to be processing grief and trauma exactly how they would. So it's scary to, to talk about your story or it's scary to, cause I'm sure a lot of times you're wondering, am I conveying what I mean to convey? Am I getting across that this was painful? Am I, am I, am I even like using the right tone of voice, even like laughing about something? They're like, is that bad that I'm laughing about it? Like, it's so hard to try to deliver the message perfectly. 
I know. And isn't that like insanity that yeah. we live in a society where people are like, you are talking about your incredibly painful journey um, through life in a way that I think you could use some tweaks. And I would like to give you some feedback <laughs> on your tone of voice. And when you, you know, laugh. How can you make and- this sympathetic to me? <laughs> how can you, how can you make this hit for, and resonate with me? I don't know. You're not, you're not, you don't look sad enough. It's so yeah. wild. Yeah. What is it like for you as the interviewer? Does it feel like you want to be mirroring back what what they're feeling? Do you have to disengage in a sense in order to be able to like leave your work at work? How's that journey been for you? Do you push like if you disagree? Like how do you because it's heavy subject matter? You know, I think it is about listening more than you speak. I think it's about being deeply curious. And I mean, you know, for so long when I was working in traditional media, we had done research, tons of research, and we had all the questions and sort of the arc of the story mapped out. So the interview was according and specific to that. And I still do that process because I think it's important. But now I just let the person in their story take us wherever we need to go, right? And that requires listening. It requires trusting them and trusting the process. And also, you know, we've talked a lot about levity. Like, I just feel like creating a safe space and some amount of ease to it and joy, not joy would probably be the wrong word, allowing people to just exhale and not have it feel, you know, it's a little bit scary going into an interview and having it recorded. So the more people can feel at ease. So I think all of those things help. Is there any sort of aftercare where you know, you stay on with them once you've stopped recording or check back in after. Or what about for yourself? Yeah, I do think I'm a deeply feeling person. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I don't know, I like in a weird way, I am drawn to feeling the full range of emotions that we have in this human experience. So I don't necessarily feel like it's, a therapist who's doing this day in, day out and really, you know, or somebody on the front lines of, you know, work that's really trauma inducing. But yeah, of course it impacts me. Of course, there's people I can't get out of my mind. I can't get out of my heart. Of course, there's interviews where like I hold my kids tighter, all of it. There's no way it can't impact you. But I think it impacts me much more in a positive way as far as my personal growth and how I move through the world versus like weighing me down. Mm -hmm, That makes mm -hmm. sense. Sometimes it's for me, it's like, okay, let me hear about the worst thing that could possibly happen so that I feel, I don't know. I, it's a, maybe a negative instinct. I don't know, but like, I'm like, I want to, I just want to be aware of what can happen in the world, I guess. Or like, I don't know, or just like how bad things could be. And then you could come out the other side, or you could even just talk about it. Yeah, it's, um, it's really illuminating too. like, because we're all just, to your point, like in our own head, living our mm-hmm. own life, thinking about ourselves in the very small world around us. You guys know from the podcast, right? When you're all of a sudden connecting with people, hearing their stories, they're all over the country, if not all over the world. It really does make you think about all the things that happen in people's life, all the things that have happened, all the things that could happen. And I agree with you. I I like that aspect of it because it it feels like my, 
expansive versus like keeping it small. Are you having more patience for people? Like someone cuts you off in traffic and you're like, I don't know what they've been through. (laughs) Well, I mean, yes, yes. I mean, I, again, I feel like people like tell me the worst thing that happened to them because they're like, oh, I can tell you (laughs) like that's, um, so I immediately have more compassion for everyone because I, I, I get more perspective on what they're going through. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's really funny that I was like, okay, I'm going to seek out wisdom in the world from people who have been through these extraordinary things and comb the, you know, finding these stories and learning from them. And like, somehow I didn't factor in that, like, I would uh, perhaps grow wiser or learn. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a content, you know, producer, you, you are always thinking about the outward and distributing it to the world. And I'm like, oh, wait a second. Like if you interview hundreds of people about wisdom, perhaps you become a little wiser. I love that. Um, and now, now maybe you'll become a little wiser playing my very silly game show. Yeah. Would you like to oh, play a game show? <laughs> I would love it. I would love it. This also is, I find, to be very revealing of people's psyche. Yes, in a way. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, I'm ready for it. So Hypotheticals is a game show where you and Gabe are going to be my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have. And then you tell me what you would do in that situation. And I decide if I like your answer. You're such a judgy pants. You're totally going to judge me. I'm ready. I'm ready. I, you know, I am, but I'm also so easily uh, swayed. swayed. Yeah, if you make a really good yeah, argument, if you make you can an argument, you can sway me five times in, in five and in as many minutes. <laughs> I was a hundred percent kidding. I just like the word judgy pants. I just wanted to say it. <laughs> but it is funny how easily I'm swayed. Yes. Yeah. But uh, what can you do? All right. Our first one is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You have been away for work for six months and have been a very absent partner during this time. When you return, your partner of 17 years says that during your absence, they started an affair with your next door neighbor, but the neighbor then moved for their work. So they would like to forget that happened and keep going with your marriage now that you are back. Would you stay with this cheater? Oh, man. Six Um, months? Yeah, you were gone for six months. And you were barely checking in. You were being were a they, bad partner. Okay. Was it sexual, emotional, or both? both. Can I ask follow-up questions? Absolutely. Yes, They're encouraged. Okay. I almost am more freaked out about the emotional than the sexual. Like, if my husband was like, you were gone, and the neighbor and I had some hot sex a couple of times, and she has moved to Kentucky, I think that would be easier <laughs> for me than... I don't know. I I think I would stay and try and work it out, but it would require therapy and rebuilding of trust. Um, I think I'd stay. Now, where were they hooking up? My house, her house? The neighbor's house. Oh, that's nice. Seems respectful. <laughs> okay, interesting. And and he, he's never going to see her again? Uh, yeah, they're never going to see each other again because this person keeps getting deprioritize for other people's careers. <laughs> and that's true, right? Like right. that person left for work also. I know it's devastating. Wow. And um, why was I being so disengaged? Because you were really busy with work and you just weren't prioritizing your partner. And had they told me that they felt that way? Yeah. And you were like, it'll be better once I'm back. But you were gone for six whole months. 
I mean, I don't know. So my sister-in-law was in the military and sometimes she had to go away to a boat in Guam for a really long time. And my brother-in-law was just home in San Diego and he just did, he just did a lot of nothing according to him. So I feel like they didn't have to cheat. (laughs) So, and she doesn't even really have email in Guam. So I'm going to, I'm going to say that I would leave. Wow. Yeah. Cause I'd be like, do you even know what my brother has to go through? His wife goes to a boat in Guam for six months and doesn't even have email. You can't even wait six months when I'm I'm available to FaceTime. Yeah, but you were in FaceTime and you were being a bad partner. Yeah, I'm out. Wow. I'm a bad partner, so see you later. <laughs> the consistency. Yeah, I guess I'm an All asshole. Right. Uh, I guess I'm in or I'm like, I don't know, really passive and in a series of relationships where I accept uh, abuse. <laughs> I was about to say you won, but now I got to take that back. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't, to the best of my knowledge, it's not a pattern, but. Um. Yeah, you you were rolled over your doormat. <laughs> but I also think if you weren't showing up and now it's an opportunity to repair where you can both show up. I don't know. I guess, yeah, if they brought up to me that they felt that way and I said, so sad, too bad. Yeah. That's on me. Right. Okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Oh, shit. Your child, four, is scheduled to be the flower girl during your sister's wedding. Your sister asks if she should be accompanied by an adult, and you say, nah, she will be fine. But as she goes down the aisle, she gets overwhelmed and starts screaming, I hate this, stop looking at me, before taking off, causing you to have to chase them into a field because the wedding was at a farm. Are you a terrible parent? <laughs> because my four-year-old ran into the farm field? And or do I go do I go in there and like yell at her and like Well that you had her have this kind of say, traumatic like, This in- is your aunt's wedding. What the <laughs> Well that um, you allowed her to to get this, you know, have this traumatic experience where she's screaming Oh got it. Stop okay, looking I at exposed- me. Stop looking at me and runs away. Yes, I exposed her to this traumatic experience. I'm going to say no because (laughs) I am a parent and like in spite of reading the books, listening to the podcast, everybody knows that no matter how hard you try, you're going to F up something and your kid's going to be in therapy and call you and address you for it. So there is no such thing as a perfect parent. So it's always the good enough parent. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Because no matter what we do, like right now, I'm like, I'm validating your feelings. I'm looking at you. I'm, re- I'm mirroring back your experience. And then in like 20 years, they'll be like, it felt condescending, you know, yeah, you should exactly. have. <laughs> so that feels really stressful for everyone involved. The four-year-old. Um, yeah, I hope I would like, you didn't be able to scoop them up and everyone would handle it. You know what I mean? With a little bit of laughter and but no I'm not a bad parent did the wedding continue on uh yeah because you got to keep going you have a strict schedule kind of why I think if you know your kid you should say actually I do think they should be walked down but you didn't do that I know so you're a bad parent wow because I think you should know your kid I think even if your sister says it'll be fine you should be like I actually I, I don't think it will be fine like I know what's the kid's name Trisha. Okay. I know Trisha. (laughs) Trisha. 
And I just know that Trisha doesn't like being looked at and doesn't like attention. And I think it would be helpful if if my partner walked her down the aisle with her. Is I'm, Am I allowed to change my answer? No. <laughs> no, it's locked in. I think what you said is, I would like to change my answer. You can change. I would like to change my answer to exactly that. Why didn't I feel like I could stand up to my sister? No, you truly thought your kid would be fine and then they weren't. Had they ever been the center of attention at something like that before? No. Yeah. And had they expressed excitement to be the flower girl? Yes. Oh, that's a bummer. See, it's hard. You never know how they're going to react. Yeah, that is a bummer. Like, well, I'm I'm pretty worried about my youngest niece at my upcoming wedding. Like, I think I think it will hopefully be a good experience. But I also could see a scenario where 10 minutes before she's like, I don't want to do this. And I'm going to have to be like, OK. Is, it, is, she, is her sister going with her? Yeah, they're both going down, but they're each taking a dog down the aisle. So it'll be a bit of a solo mission. Oh, my oh. God. Are you serious? Yeah, this You're is why I'm getting married. Children and dogs. It's incredible. They tell you not to do either of those. This Ooh. is a very high risk situation. It's going to be amazing. I- oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Can we, be, can we be in the betting pool? Can we make some bets right? about what's going to happen? But my older niece will be nine, which is like. That's, it, that's like a, she'll be fine. That's, yes. And she's a ham, total ham, mm. loves attention. And my younger niece, if she's not feeling it day of, we'll just say you'll we'll just say you don't have to or her dad will walk with her. Yeah. I mean, let's question the tradition in the first place, place putting like a four year old in a tuxedo and asking them to walk in a straight line under to be a ring bearer. People. She'll be <laughs> six. She'll be six. six. <laughs> why do we why do we take. What? Where is that tradition from? Why do little children have to d- go and? Because <laughs> it's because it's so cute. It is really cute. Yeah, it is cute. Interesting. Okay. okay, our final one. Is this a date? You are on the picket line for the writers' strike. Wow, a thing we did yesterday. <laughs> and start chatting with the person next to you. You mentioned that you're worried your arm is going to get tired holding up your sign. And they reach out and start holding your sign up too, causing your hands to touch. Is this a date? Yes. <laughs> so many people have been saying that they like, oh, the last writer's strike is where I met my husband. <laughs> really? Yes. A couple of people have said that. So I feel like, yes, I feel like there's nothing sexier than union solidarity. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that it's really cool. And you know, you have the same values. And I think it's a date. Wow. What do you think? I was thinking the same thing, like, like better than any dating app trying to match you, right? Like, you know, you have shared values to your point. And that like first initial little like spark when somebody like brushes their hand or like that is, oh my God, it's so good. Right. It's like, it's like, holy, I just felt that through my body. What the F is happening. So like, if that isn't a date, what the hell is? <laughs> you walk off into your formal date holding the sign. You walk into yes. a fancy restaurant still holding the sign Yeah, together. you can't <laughs> let go of your hands. That's beautiful. Also, you both like work in the same industry. You have so much in common. Yeah. So this is a good, you know, picketers make this move, right? There's going to be people walking through, like weaving through, like, my sign is heavy. My sign. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, my son. Oh, my son. It's so heavy. (laughs) Won't somebody help me carry it? That's good. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you, follow you, and listen to the show? 
You can find the show anywhere you listen to podcasts and it's All The Wiser Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram at All The Wiser Podcast. And my website is Kimmy Cult, C-U-L-P, not cults. People think it's cult. <laughs> C-U-L-P dot com. And thank you guys for having me. This was so fun. Of course. Thank you. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about Senator Feinstein. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> to topics x x x x x x baby baby <laughs> wow spooky <laughs> so this week i wanted to dive into a potentially controversial subject but let's go for it one of our senators from california diane feinstein who's mm-hmm. a democrat has been missing in action due to shingles and was hospitalized in february because she's 89 right Yes. And she has basically just been missing her job because she's been ill, which like from a worker's rights perspective, completely fine, totally fine. But from a you're a senator um, and really important stuff is going on. And also you're really maybe not super capable anymore to hold this position is problematic. She's the oldest person in Congress right now. And she has been missing out on all of these judicial nominees. Like, she's been making it impossible for the Democratic Party to confirm judicial nominees, which is really important, especially with everything going on with Roe v. Wade right Mm -hmm. now. Like, we really need to get good judges into these lifelong positions. And because she's missing, they can't do that. So there's, like, real high life stakes. And, And the controversy is around, like, People speaking out about the fact that she should resign. Yeah. And then other people being like, how dare you ask a woman to resign? Right. But I would argue, I don't care that she's a woman. She needs to resign. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think there should be a cap uh, for everyone in terms of Congress or elected position, because it's truly wild that we have people making decisions who are going to be dead in five years. Like, it's just bonkers. It's not even, like, the death thing for me. Like, her age, like, that's bad. But, like, why has she been, had this job for this long? That's the other thing, is that we don't, we we don't have term limits. Yes. Because I remember, she's Jewish, and I remember her coming to visit us in Florida, like, for whatever reason, Jewish Community Center, whatever. And I was, like, a child. (laughs) Like, yeah, she's been doing this way too long. She was the mayor of San Francisco from 1978 to 1988. So before y'all were born, right. I was a little tot. Right. Even before this hospitalization, there's been a lot of questions about her mental state and that she's like kind of deteriorating mm-hmm. in terms of like, you know, that her memory and that right. she's of just course. like not. Anyone. Think of our grandparents. But it's I, I think it gets to this idea that is like, oh, I'm a public servant. I've dedicated my life to helping this country. But then it's like, yes, but are you also addicted to the power? Yeah. Because why won't you, the way that you can help this country is to resign and let someone else take over so that we can like get these judges through. Right. Actually have someone be there for votes, like show up, do the job. But there's like this attachment, I think, to like the power. Like it's it's so mind blowing to me. Right. Because that doesn't, if you feel like like you're, serving and this is a dedication you're not 
actually serving the country. Right. Right. She's actively harming the country right now. So this is the thing, right? So then AOC was saying that she should resign and the reasons why. And then people were attacking AOC. But here's the thing is it's this very frustrating thing where feminism or care for women or whatever only comes up and applies for the right when they can attack Democrats for it. So, for example, it's the people being like, well, you would never ask a man to resign, blah, 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 saying it's sexism. But it's from people who are literally voting for women to die trying to get abortions like they're voting they're 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 doing this thing that bullies do where they take your own thing and they disingenuously flip it onto Mm -hmm. you to say well don't you care about women like oh you're a party who says that you know you want to go against sexism and you know you you how dare you say this about a woman meanwhile it's just it's just them using your own tactics like or your own beliefs to like flip something for you in such a a way as if to go haha gotcha but it's it, it's not it's not real it's not coming from a real place where they care about sexism i also think there's just like a massive misunderstanding that that feminism is supporting every woman doing anything <laughs> yes. and like no there are women that are actively harmful and uh, making the world worse and that and like and and feminism to me is not just supporting them because they happen to identify as women. Well, people want a reason to, certain people want a reason to attack AOC anyway. So to say, oh, well, now you're sexist. It's like, okay, you know what I mean? Like, they're like, they're misinterpreting it, like you said. They're taking that, that stance and then they're using it to like fire back in a way that they don't actually really care about. They're not misinterpreting it. They know it's exactly on purpose. What they're, they're misinterpreting doing. on purpose. They're being willfully ignorant. Yeah. But it's so interesting to think, like, who is she being surrounded by? Do you know what I mean? Like, let's even pretend for a minute that she is mentally fit to hold office, yeah. which I would argue with. But let's say she is like, how is she not being swayed by all of these people and colleagues and the public saying, please, please do what's best for us instead of yourself and be like, nah, I'm just going to come back when I come back and just kind of delay the country because in the meantime. There's people that are on her side. Chuck Schumer is being like, she'll come back. Mm, he needs to go away, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I think there should be you can't be in office past the age of like 75. That's what I think. I think it's more like what, you know, I think it's really hard to have like those harsh lines with ageism and everything. But I think it is like, are you, you know, context matters. And there would have been times where her not being there for two months would still matter, but it wouldn't be the same as right now. Like right now, it is a really important time to get these judges into office. Mm -hmm. And we do not have a strong enough majority to like be able to do that without her. Mm -hmm. And and so like you have to pay attention to the context. Like, you know, maybe if this had happened, like the first few months of Obama's term, it's like not as big of a deal. But like right right right. now, it's like a really big deal. And so you need to like you need to put yourself aside for the sake of the country. And and I think it speaks to politicians' psyche, yeah. right? Because it's like that thing of like people who, good people in power don't want it. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know? I mean, it's the same as Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. Yeah. If I was her, I would just retire. Yeah. Go to your lake house. Like, exactly. Read some Danielle Steele novels. Like chillax. It's not like, oh, I'm a Democratic senator and my governor is Republican. Like Gavin Newsom will just put another Democrat Democrat into that slot. So there's like no real 
harm here except for her ego. Yep. And that, I think, is the demise of all of us is people's egos. What do we rate this episode? I'll rate it 30 out of 20. Ooh, my sign is so heavy. <laughs> I'm not done. Hold on. You guys laugh too soon. Sorry. Ooh, my sign is so heavy. Let's fuck. <laughs> I will rate it 64 out of 58 fast songs at weddings. Yeah. Ooh, I'll rate it 20 out of 19 tough conversations. Very good. Well, thank you to Kimmy Culp for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabe Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Montz. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, you can follow this podcast at Just Between Us Pod on TikTok and at JBU Podcast on Instagram. Also, I'm on Instagram now at Gabe S. Dunn. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Raskin. And on TikTok at, at Allison Raskin Baby. And I'm on TikTok as Dabby Gun. So branding's going really well over here. Yeah, good luck finding us. Forever. Dog. <laughs>